Welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grone. I'm Batch Lazowitz. Uh, and this week we're busting out all our uh, Sim- Simpsons Treehouse of Horror credit puns because it is our Halloween Three Amigos special. Uh, this year we were returning to the cinema to talk about the 1987 slasher Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And to help us break it down, we've assembled an expert panel. Uh, first, please welcome back to the show, friend of friends, guest of guests, the third amigo himself, Mr. Rob Lynch. And if I'm to have a spooky name, let it be Ravaduk. We're also joined by special guest. You may know him as the writer of comics like Deep Breath Folks, Tales from Harrow County, Parasomnia, The Last Book You'll Ever Read, Basilisk, and Lucky Devil. That's just what's on the stands coming out right now. Making his second appearance on the podcast, it's Cullen Bunn. Thanks for hanging out with us while we talk horror, Cullen. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Certainly. Uh, so I thought we'd before we get into the movie, I uh, thought we'd kind of just uh, talk talk shop, talk business because you know as always there's there's quite a few Cullen Bucks Bun books out there in the world right now to talk about. Uh, I was curious, you know, when you're writing books that publishers are looking to launch around Halloween, you know, what time of year is it for you? Like, is there a Halloween equivalent to uh, Christmas in July, or is it just <laughs> all year round, churning and burning? <laughs> it's uh it's yeah it's pretty much halloween for me all the time so i don't uh i don't know uh what i'm working on necessarily i don't have i don't have a a a typical time when i know i'm working on halloween books in you know july or whatever because different different publishers have different you know publishing schedules and slots to to put books out in so uh it usually i don't I don't have anything that I notice that that's the, the case with usually. Okay. But like I said, it's, it's pretty much always Halloween for me. So. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of your recent projects is uh, the ghoul next door, uh, a young reader's graphic novel with uh, Kat Ferris. Uh, how do you train yourself to, uh, and I'm, I'm going to use a phrase. that's probably not the right phrase here, but like, tone it down when it comes to doing spooky stuff for kids you know what are some of the 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 good models out there you know i don't know that i really thought of it as toning it down even i mean it's a uh the ghoul next door while it it is written for kids i mean it's also a book about you know a a kid who befriends uh, a creature that eats the bodies of the dead and we don't uh we don't necessarily (laughs) Uh, I don't, I don't pull away from that. I don't try to disguise that. That's part of the story. And there's a, you know, there's quite a few, uh, you know, pretty spooky elements in the, uh, in that, in that book. If I think about, you know, comparative, it's not that difficult for me because I'm, I I usually, you know, resort back to the things that I loved when I was a kid and I just, I just channeled that stuff. 
Um, and if, if I'm channeling that, it's, it's movies like, you know, the Goonies or, uh, or, or something like that, which also, you know, while for kids was pretty, had some pretty intense moments and some pretty, uh, you know, some pretty, uh, at times gross, you know, gross and grotesque uh, elements to it. Uh, but I just, I just try to, I think about the, the fun, the fun aspects of it more than, uh, the horror aspects, I guess. Not to, not to take us too far down the, uh, the Goonies road, but you know, that, that, that's a movie my wife and I have shown our, our kids who are like 10 and four. And I always kind of like cringe a little bit because my son's favorite scene is the scene where Corey Feldman is taking the maid around the house uh, and talking to her in Spanish about where they keep the drugs and stick the bodies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great, great moment. I, I keep forgetting that my son watched it, you know, years and years ago, but I, I remember maybe cringing just a little bit at that moment uh, as well. I don't know that he remembers Goonies. It might be time for a rewatch. We, we watched it several times together, but I'm not a hundred percent sure he remembers it. Never, never a bad time for a refresher on that one. That's right. <laughs> um, you recently contributed a story to Mad Cave's uh, horror anthology, Grim Tales from the Cave, which is stories inspired by the uh, fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. Um, what do you like about working with, uh, you know, smaller publishers on stuff like this? Uh, you know, sometimes some of the smaller publishers or the, the independent publishers, they they just have, uh, they, they're just a little more, open to, to ideas and uh, they're willing to take chances that that some of the you know the the big publisher the big two, the big two would never do this this story I don't think that that we did in, in the mad cave anthology at least not in this way uh, they have other you know other masters to feed and uh, I don't know that the story we did would uh, would fly at uh, one of the bigger publishers they're willing to the, the independent publishers for me have always been more open to taking chances and definitely letting me do my thing for the most part. Good. Uh, another of the books that you have coming out, uh, the heathens uh, over at aftershock, I believe uh, it's about a team of history's greatest criminals being deployed by hell to track down their escaped uh, fellow inmates uh, working on that with, uh, Heath uh, Amadio, uh, Sammy Cavella, and Jason Wardy, uh, the latter of whom I am a big fan of from their work together on Abbott and uh, Undone by Blood. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this? How did this team all uh, come together? So this this story was all Heath's. This was Heath's doing. Uh, Heath and I have a production company called Hustle and Heart that we uh, that we we work on a number of projects through that company. But but Heath also just really loves comics. And, uh, and, you know, he brought this idea to me and said, Hey, do you want to, would you be interested in working on this with me? And, uh, and I thought it was a, it, it was a, it was a fun idea and, and I, I could immediately see how I could contribute to that story. So, uh, this was all Heath's, Heath's doing. It was, it, it's, we can blame him. And then, uh, you know, we took it to, uh, we took it to Aftershock and they introduced us to the art team, um, they thought that we didn't have an artist with it when we when we pitched the project, but uh, but aftershock immediately thought of uh, of Sammy for the art, 
and uh, and he did some sample pages that just blew us away. So uh, it it was a perfect uh, a perfect combination. Awesome. And uh, one of the characters that you're working with uh, in this book is Billy the Kid. Uh, to accidentally bring it back to another '80s movie, did you have to resist the temptation to write a scene where he runs through a mall, causing chaos while extreme plays in the background? <laughs> I did not have to resist that uh, that temptation. Heath might have. <laughs> See, that's Dan's frame of reference. Mine is Billy the Kid meets Dracula. So there you go. <laughs> I, I might have had to. That might have been some. That might have been closer to something I would have to resist. My uh, the temptation was Billy the Kid meets Dracula. Uh, but but no, I uh, I did not have to resist that. <laughs> <laughs> you're right now getting close to winding up the second of the tales from harrow county miniseries taking place after the series proper ended and spotlighting or focusing on bernice who was one of the made main supporting characters of the first volume how right. does it feel being back in harrow county uh, it feels great it's it was never a it was <laughs> It's always a world that I, I knew I'd return to. Uh, I was hesitant, a little hesitant at first because Harrow, the story that we did in Harrow County, we wanted that to be the end of that story. And I didn't want to come back and just say, okay, that story ended and here we're opening it right back up again. Uh, I wanted Harrow County to have its, its ending and I want to honor that ending. Um, which is one of the reasons we started out with focusing on Bernice. We wanted it to feel like a different, uh, a different, it's the same world, but we wanted it to definitely, we wanted readers to know it was definitely a different story. Um, but, you know, I admit, I, you know, I love writing those characters. I love, you know, doing stuff in that world. Uh, in the new one, of course, we're doing a lot more stuff with this fairy realm, which is very different than what you saw in the original series. And, uh, and we have some plans, you know, for the, the next, the next uh, couple of Tales from Harrow County will really, uh, I think, uh, are going to set it apart. There's, there's going to be some, there's some, there's some big, very cool moments coming up in the next couple of series. Uh, also, you've got a Kickstarter going on right now for a revival of the Dragon Ring uh, indie comics from uh, in the 1980s, originally published by Aircell. Um, how, how did you get involved in that project? <laughs> so I loved the Aircell books uh, when I was young. I remember uh, Dragon Ring in particular really stood out to me as a, as a, as a young reader. I loved that book. Um, and it, it, I found it really inspiring, and and I just it, there's just so much to love about it. Um, and I'm, when I think back on it, I was thinking the first couple of issues because I never read much beyond the first couple of issues. Same with uh, Warlock Five, and uh, to a lesser degree, Elf Lord, and and some of the books like that. Uh, I was just a big fan of those of those books back in the day. And over the years, I have. I've lamented, you know, those books are, you know, I've remembered those books publicly and I've lamented not knowing who uh, owned the rights to them. And I guess I was on Twitter talking about those books 
and someone said, well, we know who owns the rights. It's this guy. And they, they got me in touch with the guy who actually did own the rights to all those air cell books. Uh, and then those rights changed hands over the years. And now Outland Entertainment has, has the rights to them. And uh, I continued that conversation with Outland. Um, and so over the years, I've been, I've been pitching this idea of, of a big, a big sort of revival and reimagination of, of several of the key aerosol titles. And Dragon Ring is just going to be the fir- is the first of of those titles that will be uh, that will be reimagining. And I'm gonna I'm gonna end up ri- I'm writing all of them, and uh, and kind of coordinating this this new multiverse that they're gonna be uh, introducing. That, that, that is that is uh, fascinating. It's uh, all through, it's all through Twitter. It's all, <laughs> it's all, all connections through Twitter. Uh, I, so I love it too. It's like it's like the secret for like uh, indie comics. I'm just like, I wonder who has the rights to, I don't know, uh, that's what, May's yeah, agency that, or that, yeah. You you were in my head, man. That was the first book that popped into my brain. I, I you know what? Honestly, you were talking to Carl Kiesel about it two weeks ago, and that's that's what I plucked out of uh, the ether. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So occasionally you'll hear me say, "I wonder who owns the rights to these." You know this title. Uh, and, uh, that's my attempt to see, to find that out and, and try to make those connections. <laughs> and ho- hopefully that bodes well for, you know, a nice, uh, like hardcover collection of the original dragon rings. Um, speaking of warlock five, I did get the hardcover that came out. I think it was like last year and it's beautiful that, that, you know, Danny Bouvet, I hope I'm saying his name, right. That yeah, artwork yeah, yeah. just still holds up to this day. It's just yeah, gorgeous. So. Th- those are that, that, that that hardcover that outland put out was just i mean it was something special it was really nice yeah so you know this is this is turning into sort of like a beginning of the show lightning round uh you know we're we're kind of scratching the surface here because you got quite a few books out right now what is you know and i'm kind of asking the potato chip sophie's choice question but what is what's a favorite thing that you've written this year that you're you're dying to get in readers hands like if you could hand sell one of your comics to us right now you know could you pick one? Oh wow no i mean it's 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 pretty difficult uh you know i think i'd love for more people to get a chance to read uh lucky devil I think it's a book that's coming out from uh, from Dark Horse right now, um, uh, with Fran Fran Galan is doing the art on it, and uh, it's uh, the fourth issue, the final issue of the first arc is coming out in the next couple of weeks, I think. Um, it's a it's a book I think people may be sleeping on, but it's a it's an it's a it's a title I'm really proud of. I have big plans for it going forward, and. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think people will like it if they give it a shot, and and I don't know if if it's not a book that I get to talk about a whole lot, but uh, but it's a book I really like, and uh, and if I get to do the things I want to with it, uh, it's going to end up being something really cool and really special. I think. How many uh, how many issues you have on that? Right now, it's a four issue series. I mean, mm-hmm. you know the the secret. Everybody always asks me how long is this series. <laughs> And the truth of the matter is, well, they ask, is it an ongoing or a mini series? 
mm-hmm. and the truth of the matter is every book's a, a mini series every book's a mini series unless people pick them up and buy them. Mm-hmm. and uh and uh, that's just the way comic publishers are working now yes some like uh basilisk from boom is a 12 issue series and that's all that's what it's planned to be mm-hmm. and uh, the last book you'll ever read is planned as an eight issue series uh Lucky Devil is an initial four-issue series. Um, I would certainly, I certainly hope that we can do more of those, though. Okay. Uh, you uh, also recently teased in your newsletter, uh, quote-unquote, a big crossover comic that no one will be expecting, but that makes complete sense. Yep, can't uh, talk about that one. That's oh, it. That's all you get. Oh, That's I, all I, you get. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure. You know, uh, not, not here for spoilers, but I was curious. You know, when, when you think we'll get to find out more? <laughs> uh, I really, uh, I don't know when it's getting announced. Um, I have written the first issue of it, and art is underway. So, uh, or art will soon be underway, but, uh, so I think maybe in a couple of months it'll get announced. Okay, cool. Um, as someone who, uh, it, it seems from the outside is, is, you know, constantly churning out ideas for comics and other media. How often do you pitch yourself an idea, end up souring on it, but then sticking it in a slush pile where it kind of ends up coming in handy later? Oh, that happens all the time. I mean, I have notebooks and notebooks full of half-formed ideas or even one sentences or or ideas that I really dug into in a big way and didn't uh, and, you know, and it just felt, you know, fell apart at some point. And uh, I don't know that I ever returned to them and revived them, but I definitely have found myself pulling bits and pieces out from those ideas and and repurposing you know you know an idea here or a, a character there i'll pick up and plug into you know something new that i'm i'm working on because it 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 enhances it in some way um is there like a like a concrete recent example of that that you can uh, that comes to mind nothing is immediate it's not something i necessarily keep track of I just, uh, you know, there's definitely uh, tons of ideas that I've, I've pitched in the past to, to say, you know, Marvel, for instance, that didn't happen, that I kept the concept uh, behind, you know, I kept, I'd keep the, the, the kernel of the idea, you know, the nucleus of it, mm-hmm. and I would, you know, I'd bring it up and I'd, I'd work on it on something I'm doing for myself. But I can't think of any, you know, specific examples of it right this second. That's all right. Um, you're 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 starting to get out there again, you know, doing store signings and and what have you. Uh, you know, as a creator, how does it feel to be kind of getting back out there, uh, doing those kinds of things after you know the last year and a half that we've all had? <laughs> well, I've only I've only done one, um, and it was a great signing. I, I loved getting out in front of, you know, getting out there and interacting with the readers again. Um, it, it was weird. I'll admit it was weird. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I'll probably be doing some conventions in the, the next six months or so, but, uh, um, 
I'm not necessarily falling all over myself to get to the conventions as much as, mm. as much as I, you know, uh, as much as I like interacting with, with the readers, uh, the last, the last year and a half has taught me the things I don't miss about conventions. Mm. So, uh, I'm not, uh, when I go back to conventions, I'm going to be handling, I'm going to be doing them a little bit differently. Uh, I'm going to, and I'm going to be very selective in the ones I go to anymore. Uh, and, uh, I think it's okay for people to miss me a little bit. <laughs> uh, absence in the heart and all that. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> uh, well, well, let's, let's, let's start talking about uh, the, the movie here. We'll get down to the reason for the season. We're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, colon, Dream Warriors. Uh, this discussion is brought to you by Hypnosil. Want to stave off those night terrors and keep Freddy at bay? Hypnosil. Colin, do you remember the first time uh, that you saw this movie? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember vividly. Uh, this was the first of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies I saw in the theater. Okay. Right. So, uh, you know, I remember uh, I remember the friends I was with. I remember watching it. Uh, yeah, uh, I have uh, I have fond memories of, of my of seeing. It wasn't the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I watched. But it was the first I saw in the theater. Uh, Rob and Matt, how about you guys? <clears throat> Very vividly, uh, just like Colin said. Uh, I saw it, I was nine years old, saw it in 1987. I didn't see it uh, theatrically, but um, I mean, just as critically, it was during that initial home video release. And this is back at a time when the home video release was just as heavily marketed and celebrated as the opening weekend. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. the video store having, you know, the giant, cardboard cutout of freddy and um that was a very big year 87 i mean you know for me that was a very impressionable year i mean that was the year you know that i really got into comics um really got into star trek um really got into you know films and the mythology and and, and things like that and then nightmare was a very kind of critical thing that year it was the very first of the uh, freddy films that i saw and it just that 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 always really kind of stuck with me. I mean, I've I've got a very strong sense of like nostalgia and precedent for that. And I, I think that's why when we were brainstorming what to do, I mean, that that really that was a no-brainer. I mean, not just as you know the film what it was, but that whole idea of pop horror, which I'm sure we're gonna talk about a lot tonight. And about mm -hmm. that was basically the nexus of it right there, was that film. For me, it was sometime during uh, junior year of college. I kind of binged all, because I was never, well, a big horror person. It was more books and thing, books and comics. It wasn't the, the slashers. That was just never my, my bag. But junior year of college, I binged all of Nightmare and Friday and Halloweens. And I, over the course of that year, watched pretty much the, that entire sort of 80s horror oeuvre. So it, while it, it, it all sort of blends because this is this massive, like, I'm just going to watch all the horror movies. <laughs> so the uh, fun fact uh, for me. So this was, this was my first time seeing this one. 
as as you know matt and rob know i'm not like the biggest horror fan uh my first nightmare movie was the 2010 remake with jackie earl haley so this is uh oh my dude yeah i know this is the episode (laughs) where i show my ass again a little bit (laughs) and i can attest personally earlier this year we watched black widow all you know both of our families (laughs) i insisted okay the kids are going to bed we're still awake we're gonna watch midsummer I'm going to introduce you to A24 Horror. You're on a Florence Pugh kick. Let's do this. <laughs> I saw Dan tweet that. that, he, that we're gonna, I was like, oh, my dude. Oh, what are you, Rob, what are you doing? And I hear, from, I hear from Hillary, that gave me nightmares. That, that <laughs> fucked me up. <laughs> like, listen, Rob has always put me in the film advanced class. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the first movies we watched together as friends was like Pink Flamingos. So <laughs> <laughs> that was a litmus test. And uh, <laughs> hey, you passed. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot to to go over here and talk about and, and, and you know, bounce around like rubber balls. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the biggest observations that I ended up having is that this movie has the exact same plot as new mutants. Like it's the breakfast club in an asylum. They enter a nightmare realm and fight a monster that, you know, haunts your dreams. They kind of have powers, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more, but you know, this, obviously this one is a better version, right? <laughs> I mean, you really don't want to lean too heavily into that. I mean, I was lukewarm, which is probably much kinder than, what most of, you know, let's say Twitter was about that. Mm -hmm. I think the reason that I was lukewarm is that it did conjure that feeling of late 80s popular horror. Um, That kind of endeared me a little bit. I mean, I I think, you know, the uh, betrayal of the source material, I think, really does sink the movie. Mm -hmm. It's competently made, but just that thought, you know, the the actual work behind it. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm really going to say about that. We really shouldn't dwell too much on. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, that, no, that, no, that, that, that's 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 yeah, that's 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 a blip. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, knowing chuckle from uh, from Colin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? One thing I definitely appreciated about this movie was the practical effects that went into it. You know, the the TV that growing arms and like Freddy's head popping out of the top mm-hmm. of it. The, the whole marionette scene, uh, you know, uh, with uh, Philip getting strung up and, and walking through the, the uh, psych ward, the deflating bicycle, you know, that was that that's good stuff. And it's got a flavor to it that you definitely wouldn't get with like a modern sort of computer animated uh, effect. And- and let's not forget the Harryhausen Freddy skeleton, yeah. which yes. is a great effect. Even the marionette is kind of a nod to claymation. So, I mean, there is sort of that heritage of, you know, in-camera visual effects going on with it. I mean, that was the era of craftsmanship. I mean, you poured your heart and your hands into that work, you know, and it paid off, hopefully, you know, in, in a successful movie and a, and a Fangoria article. You know, you like these guys were celebrated as rock stars, Rob Boutin, you know. I had forgotten about the Mary. I had forgotten about the marionette scene in in part three. I had in for some reason, I had plugged that into one of the other movies. Um, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I just forgotten about it. Um, but yeah, uh, 
that was the that was the era of of these special effects you know geniuses mm-hmm. wizardry and, uh, <laughs> yeah i mean and back then that's what i wanted to do i wanted to that was my plan after high school was to go into uh special makeup effects that's what i wanted to do oh very cool um, and uh and then somehow i decided to be a writer instead but uh, yeah, uh, so I you know I have great respect for for everyone who did that kind of work. Where do you and feel? Yeah. Where do you feel like that begins? Because I, I, the the first movie that jumps to my mind is sort of the beginning of those great FX movies is American Werewolf in London, and then it sort of rolls from there. But am I, I, would, am I missing an earlier one that's maybe more obscure? I would argue probably Dick Smith's work on The Exorcist, and then they brought him in later on uh, Scanners. But um, yeah, Werewolf is probably the big landmark, you know, in terms of you know grisly, realistic graphic. Well, I would have I would have said for me it started with the with Dawn of the Dead. Oh, Savini, yeah, yeah. I mean, those a... those the effects they they were pulling off in Dawn of the Dead really. Uh, uh, stuck with me. That was, I mean, that's absolutely the the movie that that really made me interested in uh, in in you know special makeup effects. And maybe it's even before that. There was a book that came out when I was a kid, uh, and it was a it was a green paperback, and I got it. You guys may not have had weekly reader, but we had this. Our school had these weekly reader pamphlets, and you could order. Yep order books from mm-hmm. them and i got it from them when i was in fourth or fifth grade and it was called i think it was just called monster makeup um and it had uh it had how to do uh you know the frankenstein monster makeup and the werewolf and the the you know jekyll and hyde and then it had like a play in the back that you could put on for your friends if you and uh, and i loved that book so much as a kid um and uh, I think I still have a copy of it around here somewhere. But for me, even before I was really into these movies, I was I was already interested in special, you know, special effects makeup. Uh, and that probably goes back to just reading, you know, old issues of famous monsters and, you know, things like that. I like, I like that. I like the idea that, you know, there, in the weekly reader, was a singer. It's like, you too could be Tom Savini Jr. or something along those lines. <laughs> they, didn't have the, yeah, they didn't have any Tom Savini connections back then. I mean, Tom <laughs> Savini has a great makeup effects book that I still keep on my shelf over here um, that I that that I got after the I was I was already interested in, you know, in his work. But, oh, I think every almost every horror lover has. And I actually bought my copy from him at the Chiller show and had him sign it. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there are, there are a couple of sort of the by now famous uh, pop horror cliches. You know, there's a scene with creepy kids doing a uh, haunting versions of nursery rhymes. Uh, there's a, there's a creepy nun uh, <laughs> that, that, that pops uh, in and out. Uh, by the way, like, I mean, granted, we've all, seen this movie at various stages in our lives but like the whole idea that the nun ends up being freddie's mom is like telegraphed a mile away right that's about as subtle as elm street's <laughs> ever gonna get yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man I, I didn't see bruce willis being dead the whole time but i but i saw that one. <laughs> there's uh, a there's a great 
There's a great episode of there was a show called Millennium ran for three oh. seasons. And there's, uh-huh. a, there's a great episode of Millennium towards the end of the show where uh, Frank Black, who's this you know great profiler, serial killer, is watching all these horror movies. And I can't remember why he's watching horror movies. And he's, he's watching Nightmare on Elm Street and he starts trying to psychoanalyze Freddy. And, uh, and his, <laughs> his, 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 he's just like, you know, I, obviously he has a sense of abandonment and rage issues associated with it. And he... He he can't get past his anger, and uh, and his partner just says, "No, he's the bastard son of a hundred maniacs." <laughs> That's a hell of a line. I love that. <laughs> I remember that when I was trying to think. That's not one of the ones because uh, there was a few of those episodes toward the end of that series that were written by Darren Morgan, who wrote some of those classic like really classic quirky X-Files. Like, is this one of the ones that he wrote? No, this is not one of the Darren Morgans. Oh, I, I, I'm a, I loved Millennium. Good show. Didn't, didn't get the, the ending it deserved, but that's, that's <laughs> network TV for you. <laughs> what, what I think is interesting about Dream Warriors is more, I mean, this was the, the movie that changed the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Most of the stuff that people think about when they think about Nightmare on Elm Street comes from Dream Warriors. I mean, you know, the, the bastard son of 100 maniacs, but Freddy's personality, it was not the same before Dream Warriors. The, those first two movies were drastically different in tone. Um, and I get that the second one, you know, is is vilified for various reasons. Um, but Freddie was a different monster in those first two movies. Uh, arguably, I think he was much scarier in the first two movies. He became he became the monster you cheer for in Dream Warriors. And that's the way Freddie was from then from then on out. Even though he's the villain, he was the he was the character people were cheering for in those movies. And uh, and I'm not sure even with like the the Friday the Thirteenth movies. I think before before Dream Warriors, it was a different a different mood when it came to these franchise horror movies. It was a different. Uh, the, the monsters were there. We love the monsters, but, and, and I won't say he was the hero, but Freddie was absolutely <laughs> this character that people, people were going because they, if, if that, if the end of that movie, Freddie had won, they would have been just as happy. They'd have walked out and said, ah, Freddie did it. You see how awesome that was? You see how Freddie killed those people? Um, they gave him a rock and roll theme song. And uh, and and the color scheme of the movies changed from that point forward. The everything about those movies was different from then on. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, that was definitely a pivot from, you know, straight ahead like suburban horror to a more of like a dark fantasy with you know definitely an undercurrent of dark comedy to it. I think Dream Warriors. I mean, I, I know one of the things that was going to come up later is where it stands, you know, in the entire series. I think it's the most balanced in, in terms of the fantasy and the menace, if that makes any sense. I mean, Freddy still is, you know, relatively scary in Dream Warriors, but you do get that 
you know, less grounded feel with him. And, and oh, yeah, I mean, m- much more fantastical, much more like comic book. Yeah, you know, he was Steven. a super villain. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, this also leads into, you know, this is the story that I wanted to tell. It's basically this is me defining what pop horror really was. It, it, you know, it's early 1989. I'm out with my grandmother. We're at James Way. If anybody remembers uh, the old James Way stores, and uh, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to hit her up for 75 cents because when you walk out amongst the bubblegum machines, you have a machine that has remember those foil, like prismatic stickers. Yeah, that you get. Mm-hmm. They had one and a machine there, and it had Freddy and Jason and Pinhead in it. And I'm trying to, you know, hit her up because I, I really want one of these stickers. I love these movies. I'm, you know, a, a normal American kid. <laughs> and, and then I had to explain to her exactly what it was. And it's like, oh, but he, he's a killer, you see. And they burned him to death. And he's got claws ah. in his hands. And he's cool. And I, I, I shit you not, I got an e-gads out of her. And then my 20-year-old <laughs> uncle caught hell from that. And I did not get the 75 cents. <laughs> now, 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 later in the day, she was more than happy to buy a couple comic books for me because I mean, comic books, I mean, that's a great safe medium for a young American, you know, child. One of the books that I buy is Excalibur number seven, which was the Inferno tie. Yeah. And then you have, you know, this, this very memorable moment in there where Kitty kind of caught up in everything is in this like cinematic nightmare wasteland. And Brian is chasing her first. He's like as Rambo. Mm-hmm. And the next thing that you see, I mean, he's he's this, you know, murdering ghoul. He's got a Union Jack hockey mask and knives on his fingers. It's like the the point is, you know, in, in you know, between late 87 to like eight through 89, 90, if you were a kid, there, there was no escaping that. You, you were going to be exposed to that material somehow, whether it was going to be a sticker through a Marvel comic book, through your Nintendo entertainment system. It, you know, through it like network television. I mean, there was a Friday the 13th series that had nothing to do with Jason, granted. Freddie got his own series. He got his own album. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was everywhere. And you got to think, I mean, has there ever been a precedent for a, a pantheon of pop culture, you know, icons that were as <laughs> ghastly as this bunch, you know? I mean, you, you know, you can cite what was going on at the time. You had, you know, heavy metal and drugs and the satanic panic and, and, and what have you in the decadence of the 80s. I don't know. I'll let somebody a lot smarter squat out a discourse about that. But <laughs> I mean, there it is. Well, it's definitely I, I feel like those those movies specifically were this a snarky reaction to the satanic panic and sort of, you know, parents obsession with with protecting the children you know, when really, you know, the children in this case were a generation of, of latchkey kids by their parents making. And so mm-hmm. it was the parents way of, you know, finding someone to, to blame, you know, just, just lay it at the feet of, of Ozzy and, and, and Judas Priest and, and uh, what have you. And then Fishburne has that great line in the movie about sex, drugs and rock and roll. And he says, that's what's keeping the kids alive. And I thought that was the shit. Matt, you're pondering. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just killed it. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm considering, you know, well, what I mean. Granted, they're not as gory, but uh, for their time, they, the Universal monsters were equally yeah, transgressive yeah. in some cases, but they, yeah, yeah, but there wasn't a crassness to them. 
That is true. That is true. Dracula was a classy guy. <laughs> there, there was an element of class and I don't want to say apples and oranges and I don't want to be a snob and, and, and say, oh, all those movies from the 80s or, you know, or this and that. I mean, I love the Universal films. I, I'll, I'll take Bride any day over <laughs> anything wearing a mask or yeah, I guess, you know, Dracula was a man of wealth and taste. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, you know, we hear a lot about Jamie Lee Curtis, who's gone, gone on to have a very long and prosperous and varied career, uh, but still comes back to do Halloween movies every uh, every few years. You know, I feel like Heather Langenkamp, to a degree, deserves some of that same love for her work in Nightmare. Uh, you know, I, at least in this movie, that's kind of clearly what they're trying to, to, to set her up for, you know, the uh, seasoned uh, veteran final girl and everything. Uh, you know, she, so she was 23 when this movie came out, but they've made her this big shot wunderkind uh, grad student, uh, dressed her up with like big hair and shoulder pads. So she looks like she should be working with like Dolly Parton in nine to five. Um, and don't I love forget the- that gray streak. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> She's seen shit. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Colin. <laughs> seen shit that will turn you white. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she was only four years older than Patricia Arquette uh, when this came out. But, uh, you know, and another thing that I was sort of thinking about is, you know, Dr. Gordon, uh, Craig Wasson, 33 at the time, you know, he's sweet on her. And it reminds me of a more chaste version of the May-December romance in the movie we talked about during last year's uh, Halloween special, Halloween 3, uh, between uh, Tom Atkins and Stacey Nelkin, uh, you know, just without the uh, surprise on camera uh, hotel uh, uh, sex scene. I, I, that, that was far less lecherous. I mean, you're going to compare Craig Wasson to no, uh, no, our, our, not... our, our beloved Pittsburghy and Tom Atkins? <laughs> okay. You mean that fellow right there? <laughs> i will say no more because i do not know who has seen it yet or not but there is a delightful halloween three season of the witch easter egg in halloween kills i will say no more than that i no, saw yeah, it and i was so happy uh, that was the only thing that made me happy and that's i'll just leave it at that i was not a fan <laughs> But it was great to see Jamie Lee. And, you know, and back to your point about, you know, uh, Heather Lankenkamp. I mean, that that was a great tradition of horror movies with that strong female, you know, survival mm-hmm. presence. I mean, you know, going back to, you know, Marilyn Burns and Chainsaw. And then you had, you know, Black Christmas and Suspiria and Halloween and, you know, even Alien. And then, you know, later, even like, you know, the Terminator, you know, the, I, that whole thing. Like you said, the final girl. Yeah. Um, funny little bit, too. Um the very first pressing of the uh, Nightmare Blu-ray on the back refers to her as the hottie McSmarty Nancy. <laughs> I actually asked Heather about that when I when I met her, when I actually had her uh, sign this. And I said, was that some kind of like onset joke? She just like shook her head like, I, I don't know what that was. <laughs> and she had a good laugh about it. <laughs> just somebody having way too much fun writing the... Uh... <laughs> yeah blu-ray copy yeah. Uh, yeah but uh yeah no craig, craig wasson though he looked like they couldn't get judge reinhold or like a then young oh. Bill Maher. no 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 now craig wasson come on if you're a horror fan 
You remember Peter Straub's ghost story. Remember Brian De Palma's body double. The guy was really, I mean, he could have been a great horror lead. I loved him seeing him in Dream Warriors. And then here we go, Matt. Which one of us is going to bring up Batman the Animated Series or Deep Space Nine first? It's going to be me. (laughs) (laughs) The episode Hard Time with O'Brien when he's imprisoned basically within his mind for decades and he's haunted by his alien bunkmate that he may or may not have murdered. That was Craig Wasson. It was. (laughs) Son of a gun. Animated Series to you now, baby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm having a moment you're, you're he's, he's to gotta google me. it first yeah no, uh, yeah it's <laughs> killing me because it's like wait ah uh, my brain is just oh, I, i'm not googling it i'm literally like okay trying to remember well i'm not hitting me then. <laughs> yeah i'm gonna you're gonna try to be a mentat <laughs> yeah I've seen Dune five times now, by the way. Ooh. By the time this airs, yes, everybody go see that in IMAX immediately. It is. I will be getting my tickets tomorrow when they become available at my local AMC. Who is he in animated series? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, sa- I'm waiting for you to bring up the animated series. Oh, okay. Oh, got oh, it. Jeez. All right. Oh, I thought you. I was like, wait. He was, I was like, he wasn't in animated series. Like, I usually am able to hit that right off. Oh. <laughs> Like, oh god! Well, false promise. Oh, I'm gonna get smacked for that when you see me next. <laughs> well, all right. Although I will that's, say, okay, since, since, since you've brought up Batman, it does <laughs> remind me having just reread Dark Knight Returns for my other show, the Batman, the ba- Bat Chat. That's Bat Chat with Matt and Will, available Thursdays at Comics XF. <laughs> it, it reminds me with while watching this and especially with dr sims how much the 80s loathes psychiatrists the 80s in general has a real issue with pop with psychiatrists in pop culture well, whether in a troy <laughs> the, the exception that proves the rule because I mean, just just think about it. Because you know, Dark Knight has those two guys who are the Joker's psychiatrists, who are just these awful pop shrinks, and then the cold Doctor Sims, who is you know, who's has not quite Ratchet light. Yeah, Ratchet, exactly. Ratchet light. Yeah, there's DS Nine again, Louis Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's there is this sort of eye rolling at psychiatry in that mid to late 80s that pops up. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, think about uh, uh, Hellraiser 2 with Dr. Shenard. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, I mean, I think that he's he's out and out awful. He's, he's the worst. So. That was, I need to watch the Hellraisers again. It's been a yeah, while. When he becomes a Leviathan at the end. Oh, wild. Wild stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably not so you get to like Lorraine Bracco in The Sopranos and uh, uh, I don't know, Billy Crystal and analyze this. I'm not saying that's a good example. I'm just saying, you know, in terms of like people in the mental health profession actually, you know, being portrayed a little bit more sensitively. Uh, And Frasier. Don't forget Frasier. Frasier. Good point. Good point. There you go. That's the turning point. (laughs) Frasier Crane. 
Dan Detroit walks so Frazier could run. Well, no, because Frazier came first. I'm moving on. I'm punching yeah. out on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, one more uh, fun Heather Langenkamp fact that I'll share in doing research for this episode. I found out she ended, she played two different characters on Growing Pains within like just a couple seasons. So uh, I don't know if any of you, and you'd have no reason to really, remember the spinoff, Just the Ten of Us? Doing it the best I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she, she was one of the daughters on that show. And so that mm-hmm. came out of Growing Pains. But then she ended up playing a different character on the Seaver, Seaver's like European vacation, like a couple years after that uh, show was spun off. So mm-hmm. just a one of the other daughters was in the, uh, the fifth, uh, the dream child also. So there's even oh. more of a connection. <laughs> That's a, that's a weird number of connections between uh, <laughs> the Nightmare franchise and just the yeah. 10 of us. Told you, it's everywhere. It's in the water. That's true. That's It, it, it didn't have a 900 line for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that kind of stuck out to me, I was starting to, like, get into, like, looking at the walls on all the different uh, characters, <laughs> you know, rooms. And so, you know, obviously, Will had the marionettes because that's what, you know, turned, uh, you know, killed the one guy, uh, which I mean, his whole thing was he was like a D&D fan. I don't know how that translates to to puppets, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Kincaid, who if you're looking for a true hero of the movie, uh, that's my boy right there. Uh, oh, Ken Sagos is awesome, too. If you ever get to meet him at a show. Oh, good guy. That, that is wonderful to hear. Yeah. he So he has like a run DMC poster on the wall. Makes sense. <laughs> Perfect for the time. Right. Joey uh, just has a poster that says hang lighting on it. It's just a guy on a hang lighter underneath. You know, those like inspirational posters. Say. Yeah, it just says hang lighting. I don't know what's inspirational about it. Hang lighting is cool, but, you know, I guess I had to find something. I was like, well, listen, he's the he's the jock, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> we need something that says sports. <laughs> he served one purpose in that film and one purpose only. He was the gateway to titty. That's it. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it, I, I marked it. It took 50 minutes for gratuitous nudity, but it, it's always yeah. interesting to see how long it takes. But it got there. <laughs> it, 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 it was one scene, and <laughs> it, it was also see. Okay, so this was the thing I was wondering because you know we talk about like how this is the turning point in the franchise and how people start to root for Freddy. Was the moment was when when Joey gets tied to the bed and Freddie makes the tongue tied uh, pun. Was that like his, was that the real turning point where Freddie turns into sort of like that's a, a goofster in addition to like a you know I, serial killer? I think it's e- either that or you know the whole the the Jaja <laughs> Gabor bit. Or like, I'm a fuck what you think. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know that that whole line about you know welcome to the prime time bitch that was all improvised right there on the set and the director loved that so much that they kept that in and you know i think yeah. that was the first time that we were meant to laugh with freddie mm-hmm. right. that, that that was another one i saw them in the credits uh, Zaza Gabor and dick cavett i'm like wait what is this the love boat <laughs> fun fact about time has no meaning uh four <laughs> or five years ago i saw dick cavett on stage playing cthulhu it was delightful whoa uh, it, it was a radio. It was a stage and it was being recorded as a radio play, and oh, he was okay. the voice of Cthulhu on a thrilling adventure hour. It made me happy. <laughs> wow. Yep. Hmm. 
He's also about like this tall. <laughs> you stand him next, like six foot five, Zachary Levi. It was a really weird contrast. Wow. So uh, here's here's another kind of leap in logic question. So Nancy takes Doctor Gordon to the bar where her sheriff dad is is getting drunk. Did did he then drive Gordon to that church and the junkyard? Like sure. drunk? Sure he did. It was the 80. <laughs> <laughs> He's John Saxon. He can do what he goddamn well wants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, asked and answered. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's I did I did say to myself this is all over. It's like I would definitely watch more of these kids. Like I kind of want them to like spin off into their own movie. Like you know, even if it's just the ones that survived. Well, they did. It was called the Dream Master. Oh. I got I got sour news for you, Jack. <laughs> Every spoiler with it, they get hixed and nuded in the first half hour. <laughs> Yeah, don't get your hopes up. They're in part five. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, there we go. Um, but you know, at the at the same time, I was kind of like, you know, each of these, each of their like powers and stuff feel very, you know, I mean, Freddie's basically just rewriting reality in his own dimension, and and, and Patricia Arquette's like, well, I could do flips. <laughs> <laughs> Like Taryn didn't even really have powers. She just had a leather suit and a mohawk and a couple of knives. If anything, she was dressed like Storm, and Storm didn't have powers. Well, uh, I mean, she's, I'm a, a, sure even she even was both beautiful and bad. So that is know, true. I don't know what kind of powers you need. Sir. <laughs> she exuded confidence in that. You know, I mean, I'm trying to help out here. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have all the mental powers of. You know the the villain as well, maybe kind of hopefully when they're in your brain. I mean, the whole point of it was you know to give you know the kids some kind of mechanism that they're able to fight back, mm-hmm. at least you know. To, I mean, it's you know still a lopsided. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, really, it, it kind of it, it took uh, you know Gordon and and uh, the sheriff de- defeating the Ray Harryhausen skeleton to to kind of put the whole thing. I guess not to rest because they made, you know, however many more movies they yeah. made, but yeah. you know, for now. Until Kincaid's dog digs them up in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That, that was, that was my favorite power though. Kincaid, you know, not so much the super strength as like the Kool-Aid Manning through walls. That, <laughs> that was my favorite bit. <laughs> uh. Well, this, and you know, Speaking of powers, I mean, this was also the first time, this was the movie where Freddie had powers beyond just cutting people in their dreams. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a slasher up until this point. And then he, then he's, you know, Mixelplex, Mixelpitlick, however you say it. Then he could do anything. And I mean, you're, the the TV is still one of the great kills. I mean that the the effect and the whole thing it, it sticks in my brain. Just that image of her, you know, her body just hanging out of that TV. I mean that that's yeah. still that's a pretty strong image. 
Uh, also up there, uh, the scene where Patricia Arquette's character gets vored, uh, straight up vored <laughs> by that slug. That, that's great practical effect work, right? There. Yeah. Great, great puppet work. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, had 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 she been in had she been in much before this? Because I feel like oh. she was doing a pretty good job. I I mean, she, yeah, I don't want to cite nepotism or anything. I mean, her sister, you know, Rosanna Arquette, yeah, was out there. Business. So I, I I mean, yeah. So it was her her, it was her film debut was was Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three, mm. yeah. according to Wikipedia. Ah, uh, Wikipedia. I mean, she, Turned out to be a fine actress on her on an Academy Award-winning actress at that. I mean, she was you know phenomenal in Boyhood, and you know she earned that statue. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, also, want to give out the shout out to her mom, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Teresa. Oh, '80s, '80s parents in horror movies. If they're not sleeping around, they're drunk, and if they're not drunk, they're Something else horrible. But Matt, you oh. just described the teens as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's generational. That's what it's all coming back mm. to. <laughs> Although I, I will say, still not the worst character in this movie. Neither is Freddy. That orderly. I I was like, oh yeah, you fall asleep and Freddy kill you. I would like to watch that. Lorenzo was a scuzz was a scuzz bucket. Patricia Arquette's mom was just trying to get laid. Now, now I'll be candid for a minute. I mean, I I haven't worked, you know, anything like mental health, but I have worked like subacute facility Mm -hmm. types. That's not too far off the mark. I mean, some of the behavior there is really Mm. abhorrent, like the things that you see. So, I mean, that that wasn't exaggerated to me. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That is unfortunate. They're extremely and sad. Yes. I'm kind of just, I got, I got all these like bullet points here now. Did anybody notice? So uh, at one point, Dr. Gordon, like he, you know, he's taking his things out of the hospital because he just got canned. And this like photo that was just sort of flimsily, like eight by 10 photos flimsily placed atop his box falls and he goes to pick it up so he can look at it longingly and the camera can hold on to it. And it's him having a picnic with a couple of the kids uh, from the, you know, from the ward. And they're all just sucking on juice boxes. Oh. And it's just kind of this weird image of an, uh, you know, a, adult man having a having a juicy juice. <laughs> Would you rather him partying with Spuds McKenzie? I mean, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes, a little bit. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, part of that. I mean, it, it's kind of you know to establish. I mean, he turns out he was an okay guy, and, and that's a rarity in, I guess, what you want to call like teen horror, where you have an, an adult protagonist that does believe them and does, you know, work, try to protect them and. You know, I, I thought he was an okay guy. <laughs> yeah, definitely seen worse. Definitely was worse in that movie. Uh, <laughs> I would have but, loved to see a lot more of Lar- uh, Lawrence Fishburne, which I understand. I mean, at that point in his career, I mean, I think prior to that, I know he had his debut in uh, uh, Apocalypse Now in a very small but memorable role in that. And that was, you know, before. I mean, I know you're probably dying to make a Cowboy Curtis joke. <laughs> right now, the Dewey's Playhouse, but you know, this is still a few years off when you know, like King of New York and Deep Cover, and then mm-hmm. you know, huge meteoric breakthrough with uh, Boys in the Hood, I think, which really established him as one of like the great actors, and then went on to do like iconic work in like you know, The Matrix, and you know, he's, he's still one of the greats. I mean, I, I Blackish is one of the few sitcoms that we actually watch, and he's awesome in that. 
in, it, in Nightmare, he feels like a guy who's like on the cusp of he's acting like he's on the cusp of breaking out. Yeah. I mean, that's what 35 years of hindsight or whatever, but still. Mm-hmm. And right. a criminally underrated Othello. Oh, great movie. Great, great, great movie. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, uh, on, on the whole, how do we feel like this one works as a as a piece of, of pop horror of its time? As, as a piece of pop horror, I mean, I think that it, it really could be sort of like the shining example of it. It's, it's the peak of it, of that particular. I mean, horror itself is such a huge umbrella term. I mean, even if you look at like the year 1987, where you, you've got Dream Warriors and you have Hellraiser and you have Monster Squad, and then you have something like Angel Heart, which is, you know, very explicitly an adult noir film with supernatural elements. I mean, they're all nominally horror. They all succeed on their own and, you know, the goals that they, you know, seek out to achieve individually. I mean, I think it stands as horror. I mean, it's just like if you were talking about rock and roll in 1987, you know, you had, you know, you two poison and, and Husker do all three completely different on, you know, the critical and, you know, the, the fan base spectrum, but still like nominally rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there it goes. There. Yeah. I think uh, it's, uh, I think Rob just said, you know, shining an example. I think this is the shining example. I think it changed the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but I also think it changed. I mean, it, I, I feel like uh, the genre changed in big ways with the release of this movie because it was so commercially popular. And uh, not just, I mean, I think this is a movie that, that you know, people who didn't like horror movies would, would watch this and get a kick out of it. Um, and I think that, that it changed it changed things you know going forward across the genre how about uh within the fran- the nightmare franchise itself do we think this is like is there enough to say a top five you know top five top three there's, there's enough to say a top five uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my favorite of the of the nightmare on Elm street movies it's a great movie uh but and it's probably better than some of the ones I would say are my favorites. But uh, but it's still for various reasons it's not my favorite of the movies. Uh, the favorite my favorite's always going to be the first one. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah. it, I mean it's genuinely a terrifying horror movie, and people forget that now because of Dream Warriors up. They forget how mm. scary Freddy really was at the beginning. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and I have a real soft spot in my heart for the Dream Master. I don't know why, but I really do. There's something about Dream Master that I really, really love. And it might even edge out Dream Warriors as a second for me. Yeah, I mean, I actually, this is number two for me with the original at number one Mm -hmm. because i just think the original the original is a great horror movie i I think by far it's the best sequel i think it's the most fun of the series um i certainly respect people that um really love a new nightmare um Mm. i know it was very ahead of its time with you know it's very meta um very fourth wall breaking um 
more innovative than it is, I think, entertaining. But uh, yeah, I agree. With I mean, that. There, yeah, but there, I mean, there it is. I mean, you know, Dream Warriors. I mean, it's just it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think the first one is still if you want the definitive Freddy experience. I mean, look no further than that. But you know, definitely catch the third one. I think that 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 makes a great companion piece to it, and I think you could live with those two and be pretty full. Definitely, definitely was a lot of fun. Now, uh, Rob, uh, you know, we've mentioned this a couple times already, but uh, you are you are a, 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 a regular attendee of, of some of the, the horror con shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, any any good sort of nuggets for meeting various cast members over the years? Well, I, I can tell you this uh, definitively. I mean, I've, I've been going to horror cons for a long time and I've been through all the big trends, whether it's, you know, The Walking Dead or Stranger Things and It. And uh, or uh, I, they, they've had like the entire casts there and it's insane, you know, just that that amount of fandom that comes out for it. None of it rivals when Robert England comes to town. Hmm. The closest that I've ever seen in terms of just like an outpouring and, you know, um, George Romero and uh, John Carpenter are the only two. I mean, England does a lot of these shows and still. I mean, you can expect, I mean, even if you're there early, waiting six to seven hours to go see him. They don't put him in the ballroom and they don't put him in like one of the little side rooms and everything. He has his own mini ballroom upstairs. (laughs) And when you're in that room with him, you see why. He engages with each and every single person that comes to that table and talks to. I mean, (laughs) the handler actually was starting to physically pull me away. I wasn't even talking to him. He was talking to me. I, this was around the time that Funko really took off. Uh-huh. And I had him sign my Funko Pop. And he's like telling me, you know, back at the height of, you know, Freddy Mania, I was over in Japan. And they had these Hello Kitties that had little fedoras and the little claws on it. They remind me just like that. And he's telling me the story of just like all the places he's been around the world. And you can see the handler is getting annoyed with him because he just keeps talking like this. I mean... The man loves his fans, clearly. And it, it's just, it, it's a sight to see. I mean, it, it, it makes you feel really good to be like a horror fan. You know, it's it's awesome. Heart, heartwarming stuff. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it is it is October. Tis the season. Uh, you know, night, nightmare movies aside, you know, does anybody have any good uh, spooky season rex uh colin i know you got a long viewing list uh this month <laughs> yeah i don't know that i've i don't know that i've uh accomplished most of it i've been watching other things um i entered i started entering a horror trivia contest at our alamo draft house Ooh. and uh i've been watching movies to to brush up on the different uh, the different uh, genres that the the trivia nights are covering, so I kind of went off my uh, my list. I think I'll, I'll get I'll get most of it, but I I've added a lot to it in an effort to win this stupid trivia contest. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street, I got the we got my team got the address wrong of Nancy's house in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> we did not get it. Was that like the biggest or, or, or the most notable uh, stumper? No, there were a few, there were a few stumpers in, in, in it, but uh, that was the one that uh, 
that I felt like I should have known. And we were off by five numbers on a, you know, on a guess. We missed it by five numbers on the guess. But uh, uh, I feel like, uh, I feel like I should have known that one. But uh, as many times as I've watched Nightmare on Elm Street. So, uh, no, there were other, there were others. I can't think of them right at this moment, but Mm. uh, a bunch of frustrating damn questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, how about you rob what do you what are you watching this uh well this tober well you guys know i mean i'm still keeping that physical media torch uh burning brightly um got a few releases here that uh very recent that uh are notable um criterion who's always you know good for you know a nugget here and there um they just released the uh the classic uh nightmarish no drama onibaba from 1964 which uh it inspired some of the demonic imagery that we saw in The Exorcist. If you're a Criterion collector, fan of like classic Japanese cinema, classic horror, definitely worth it. Um, big surprise here, the, uh, the Disney Movie Club. Um, they actually uh, press their own exclusive discs that you have to be a, you know, a member to mm-hmm. actually order. Um, they just recently released Something Wicked This Way Comes from 1982. Um, my wife and I actually sat and watched it last night and let me tell you that holds up and there are some really truly chilling moments in that that that, that still to this day is just, I I can't like recommend that more highly um, great to see you know John, an early Jonathan Price performance Pam Greer in a very uh, surprising performance then um, there's the great uh, Vinegar Syndrome which is <laughs> probably uh the gutter version of uh, Criterion, who's been, you know, hashing out like, you know, trash classics, uh, recently released uh, Blades. It's a late 80s uh, trauma artifact. Uh, it's basically like a one-to-one retelling of Jaws set on a golf course featuring a killer lawnmower. And that's really <laughs> all you need to know. <laughs> you know, and now like, you know, every year, um, usually like starting like in the middle of September or whatever, you know, I try to like you know if i'm off at, at night and my wife's working or whatever you know pulling like a double feature and i try to come up with you know either like creative double features or things like that sometimes it's just like okay i'm gonna watch two universal classics or two hammer films this and that and i've been trying to mix it up a little bit this year uh the other night i did uh, a werewolf double feature matt you would appreciate this i did the uh amicus classic uh the beast must die i and, love it and silver bullet which i thought nice. you know that that, that werewolf mystery um, for this Wednesday night, I have planned out uh, an Isabel Ajani double feature with uh, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu and Possession. Hmm. That, that's going to be a first time screening both of them back to back. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good month. For me, it's nostalgia because, I, I mean, I have to be candid. I've been kind of cold on a lot of like the newer horror that, that's come out in like the last couple of months. It's, it's, I, I didn't feel malignant. I didn't care for Lamb, which is unusual because the A24 films, I don't mean to sound like, you know, Mr. A24 cheerleader. We'll talk about that off mic because I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because I that, had some feelings too. It was, it was very Lamb, mixed. But Lamb is a movie that in gen, that brings out about a lot of feelings. Believe <laughs> oh, I, oh, believe me. It's I a, think a lot of them missed the mark, but it, it, it's a piece of work and I, it's, it's I can't dismiss else. it, but yeah. yeah. I mean, compared to, I hate to compare it to other A24 releases, though. It just, it was a little, it, it lost me a little bit more than, say, like a Midsummer or Hereditary. Um, what else? Halloween Kills I wasn't too thrilled with. Um, 
VHS 94, uneven. Like all the VHS films are, are very uneven. So, I mean, fortunately, you know, I mean, I got that big wall of physical media and I could just, you know, indulge in nostalgia. <laughs> so. I am looking forward to not this Friday, but next Friday, where two horror movies that I've been looking forward to for one for a hell of a long time. Thanks, COVID. Uh, uh, and, uh, Antlers, the new oh, Russell, yes. Jesse Plemons, uh, produced by Del Toro, finally drops. I've been waiting for that for a year. Exactly. As does Edgar Wright's new Last Night in Soho. Yeah. with Anna Taylor-Joy and Matt, Dr. Who Smith, and Terrence Stamp playing the old man version oh. of Matt Smith, which just looks so stylish and so cool. And is an Edgar Wright non-comedy that I can, you know, now watch guiltlessly since Baby Driver, which I love, now has someone who I really don't want to watch in movies anymore because, you know... Yeah, I don't want to support that person anymore. Off the horror tip for a second, but I will say of Edgar Wright, um, the Sparks Brothers is probably the best rock documentary I've ever seen. Mm. It's one of my favorites of the year. It is phenomenal. So, uh, Rob, you you uh, kind of teed this one up, uh, said you could answer it. We did get a couple questions in from uh, our regular uh, Grand Inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl. Uh, the one I'll ask is, uh, any tips for a scaredy cat like me who would like to watch more horror? <sighs> All right. You got to look at it. How I define horror is that it's a challenge to our sensibilities, um, to our taboos, to our fears, to our thresholds and things like that. And it's always going to work on different levels. And I think you really have to examine what is it that scares you? Is it, is it some kind of content? Is it some kind of theme? Is it jump scares? I, I think you can learn a lot about yourself through watching horror because you do you are challenging those thresholds that you have. And I mean, you're going to discover, I mean, not everything's for you. I mean, you're a human being, you have feelings. I mean, personally, I mean, I am a hardcore horror fan. Um, but that said, I mean my pressure point you know anything with like real animal suffering or exploitative sexual violence you know mm -hmm. I, I i've got nearly four thousand movies on my shelves cannibal holocaust and i spit on your grave are not among them and i'm fine with that and i think you need to do that and i, I think you know really take advantage of something that you know i didn't have when i was young in the, in the internet that you can kind of seek out you know those those topics that you want to avoid and maybe the things that interest you and you know talk to people you know find that friend that you trust I mean I, I know with like with Matt and you know your you know idea of horror I mean I've come to really value your opinion and if you recommend something to me I know that it's most likely very much going to resonate with me so right back at you yeah I mean really I mean it's just you got to do a little bit of legwork but yeah I mean there's something for everybody and here's the thing a lot of thing that things that are considered horror i mean it's really just you know dark fantasy i mean check out a guillermo del toro film that could be up your alley if you've never seen it since i just mentioned it before shawn of the dead yeah just you know respect just respect your boundaries you don't have to push yourself i mean it's it's it's, it's entertainment and horror can be extremely thrilling and entertaining you know if it's the funny stuff that you might like you know check out you know one of the echo rights you know like shawn of the dead or so just, you know, kind of keep an open mind and just, you know, be mindful of, of your own thresholds. And that's it. And 
You know, if, if there's something that interests you, I mean, I know I'm not on Twitter. I mean, reach out to one of these guys for recommendations. I'd be happy to put a list together for you, you know, things that you might like. Everyone, this has been a uh, fantastic hour and, and uh, change discussion. Uh, Colin, uh, we'll, we'll let you go. Final question. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, your, your many uh, projects going on right now? <laughs> so uh, the, probably the best, you, know, you can find me at my website, cullenbun.com. Uh, on Twitter, which is probably one of the better ways to interact with me, I'm just, and, and pretty much all social media, I'm Cullen Bun, and uh, I have a, a, a Discord server, I have a new e-newsletter, you can get all to all of that from my website and from my Twitter, you can get to all of those things as well. All right, Colin, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and then talking Nightmare 3 with us. <laughs> all right, thanks for having me, guys. I, I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Uh that's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at Comics XF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from Comics XF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and Comics XF at Comics XF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. I-